Hi, and welcome to the History Machine Podcast Season 2. I'm your host, Niall, and my co-host is... Cahill, hello. <laughs> welcome back, and thanks very much for uh, trying this brand new episode that's going to be focusing on Octavian, sometimes better known as Augustus. So, we've been gone a while, but we've been very busy in that time. Both Cahill and I have been doing a significant amount of work trying to both update the database and the battles and the information and also working on the AI known as the History Machine to try and get some very interesting results on these commanders from antiquity. I've just been updating the database with new battles. I've been looking at previous battles and trying to find more accurate results for some questionable figures that might have been estimates and checking out some other bits and pieces, updating maybe some unit types, checking out other data, making sure things were okay, and pulling together this this new updated database has just been used to make better predictions, to make more interesting predictions, and to look really at antiquity and later as a whole. So the new database goes up to roughly the year 600 AD. It is still a little bit focused on some of the Greco-Roman characters, a little bit more towards anything in the Middle East or parts of Asia. And uh, all that's going to be quite useful. And there's even a little bit then towards the areas of like France, Germany, anything that would involve uh, Visigoths and Goths and the like. So firstly, Cahill, do you want to talk a little bit about the history machine? What kind of updates has it gone through? What does it look like now? And what kind of differences should we expect? So the history machine has been pretty much totally rewritten in between seasons. I suppose our main issue is that there's a relatively small database for what a neural network needs to train it. So we've uh, made some adjustments for that. The algorithm has been changed for how it trains itself, which works better for my PC, which is of limited power. Uh, (laughs) There's been a lot of changes to how it interprets army composition, the regions that battles are happening, the regions that factions are from. And all this, I think, should allow it to get more insights with a bit less information. And so the end result is it's now more accurate than it was before. It's able to adjust based on time period and region. You can see as you go through the years or go from one part of the world to the other, like at certain points, it will favor heavy infantry here in this time period, say with hoplites in Greece, as you get maybe into later time periods, it starts favoring heavy cavalry more and so on. Mm -hmm. So because of those updates, then it would be safe to say it's recognizing patterns, it's recognizing sequence and time, it's recognizing army compositions, it's recognizing different unit types and their their compositions and kind of a a rock, paper, scissors between different different units and different groups. Yeah, hopefully it should be doing that. And uh, I suppose there should be some overlap in certain episodes, including this one's with some historical mm-hmm. figures that we've covered in the past. And we might you might see that there are some different uh, results from the history machine on how mm-hmm. it uh, rates them now versus how it used to rate them. And we might even get that. I'm, I'm going to continue training the history machine in between episodes. So even episode to episode, there might be some adjustments. Mm-hmm. There might be a bit of the uh, tipping the scale. So as the mm-hmm. season progresses, we might uh, reevaluate some older characters as they compare to new ones we're looking at. Definitely. It's interesting to see that if we got a little bit of extra information on a battle that an older general or a somebody that we have done an episode on before has actually gone up or down in rankings. And we'll definitely be coming back to that just to check it out and show exactly, um, try and help explain those kind of secret sauces and the je, the uh, je ne sais quoi that, that makes up uh, some of 
some of the really famous figures in history that we've covered because um I was quite surprised to see that some of them have improved and some of them have gone down and and it's, it makes sense and it's kind of showing that the history machine itself when it's redesigned has come to different opinions effectively the artificial intelligence has come up with a new way to use its artificial intelligence to analyze the information and go well actually I've come to this conclusion now so <laughs> and it's going to continue to do that yes as of uh, recording today the best figure from last season, for example, is now Hannibal, once again. Yes. He's shot up through the rankings. Uh, the History Machine is more aware that the battles he lost were ones that, at that stage, he was exhausted, and the battles he won were way against the odds. So, Hannibal, yeah. History yeah. Machine's new fave from last season. <laughs> Pretty good, which is amazing. It looked at Canet and kind of went, oh, wow. <laughs> that, that shouldn't have happened. <laughs> that wasn't really a possibility. But, Hannibal aside, let's talk about our... Uh, we're going to say our person, you know, for the episode du jour, uh, Octavian. So where to begin with Octavian? He was the grandnephew of Caesar and he was related to him on his mother's side. Octavian as a child was quite fragile. He was very sickly, kind of deemed a little bit unremarkable, but he had the ability to make friends. And that's going to be very important in the long run. So ultimately, what kind of happens to him? is Julius Caesar, upon returning from North Africa after his civil war, being victorious and pretty much wrapping up and getting control of what's left of the Roman Republic, soon to be the new Roman Empire, takes a look and discovers Octavian and decides that this guy potentially could be a legitimate male heir for what I'm trying to do and where I want to succeed from. Now, if you remember, Caesar does have a child with Cleopatra, but that child is not really deemed legitimate. Yeah. So on one side, you have a child with the full backing of Egypt, who is his actual son. And then on the other side, you have sickly child from his sister's side. If, if you were betting, you wouldn't think it would go this way. I think it, it should be remarked. This is very unexpected that this is who he goes with. Very, very much so. Now, the only thing Octavian's got going for him over the young Caesarian, who would be the child between uh, Caesar and Cleopatra, is he's that little bit older. He's just old enough to really be able to take command if something goes horribly wrong. Spoiler alert, might happen. Caesar takes Octavian under his wing, shows him a little bit of the ropes, kind of teaches him a little bit of the political ways, what you can do, who you can ignore, who you can talk to, what backs you need to scratch, what, you know, what backs you can ignore. <laughs> uh, and ultimately, the final goal for Caesar when he's ready with Octavian is we're going to ship off, we're going to invade Parthia, and here, just to begin as a little bit of a side note, if you remember, Parthia, the last time it was invaded by some Romans, it was by Crassus, who ended up losing three standards to them, so we really have a little bit of honour to win back and definitely have a little bit of a bone to pick with. So effectively, the Romans do have a pretext for a war. And if Caesar likes anything, it's invading places and bringing his legions with it. So the plan is Caesar's going to take Octavian to Parthia, finally educate him and polish up that, you know, polish up that student to go. This is how you command an army. This is how you win a war. But before that happens, Caesar is assassinated. Now, Caesar's assassination is probably the most famous coup in history. And it's probably also the example of how not to perform a coup. So they broke a couple of rules. The first thing... Now, uh, so listeners, if you are actually planning a coup, I'm not going to stop you. But if you're planning a coup, there's a couple of things you should really factor and consider. The first is, 
when you take out the person in command, you're immediately about to create a vacuum of power. So you should be able to plug that vacuum with either a puppet or with yourself. That's the first thing. So the coup of senators that decide to kill Julius Caesar on the Ides of March don't have that. The next thing you don't do is you don't leave any of the supporters alive. Um, so you don't kill a king and then leave the royal family alone. It's like because, you know, there are lines of succession. So when Julius Caesar was killed, they didn't kill Mark Antony. They didn't kill any of his surviving male relatives. They didn't kill any of his generals or commanders. There was nothing. It was just we killed the one guy and we move on. So they completely, they completely wrecked that. Uh, actually, as a funny little side note, the moment Julius Caesar is killed, Octavian is actually in Macedonia with five legions ready to go. So it's like you don't leave them with an army. Yeah. So not only have not like done anything to damage any of their any of his supporters like his supporters are actively already armed and ready for a counterattack. <laughs> yeah and uh lastly you also definitely don't kill a political leader who's immensely popular considering caesar was incredibly popular because he was about to bring in a long-lasting peace once all of these civil wars were over and just for a little bit of a track record you might go like well how many civil wars well throughout the history of italy we're, we're to like, we're talking, this is just the generations of non-stop warring, particularly civil warring with Romans. They had the revolt of the Italian allies who were looking for citizenship. Then they had Marius and Sulla go at it. Then Sulla had a second civil war. Then Caesar went against Pompey. And then finally Caesar kind of cleans up in North Africa and brings a bit of stability. And he's about to invade Parthia. But it's not really a civil war anymore. It's not going to be Italians or Romans killing each other. And also, his entire career, Caesar was always very concerned about his public image. With the with the general public, he you know, oh, sent definitely. back all these very flattering reports of all his battles in Gaul. Like, you know, the really the reason there was civil war with him was because there were they were just getting concerned he was getting too popular, really. Like, they, <laughs> he's, he's not someone to just take out out of nowhere and expect no repercussions. Mm, definitely. So, um, with that with that in mind, and with that aside, uh, Julius Caesar is just dead. The people who wiped him out in one of the messiest and most famous coups in history broke a lot of cardinal rules, didn't really do anything, and just kind of hoped everything was going to go back to some kind of normality, which it didn't. Mark Antony, upon the assassination, briefly flees Rome and kind of a, well, I'm next. And then he isn't next and he decides, well, I guess it's time to come back. They dive into Julius Caesar's will. And realistically, you think about what's going to or what really should happen at this point. Mark Antony, for all of his faults, and we'll come to them because he's got quite a few. He pretty much is the second man in Rome. So with the death of Julius Caesar and no follow-up and no counter-purges and no backups and no extra-purges and nothing really else done by the Senate, who are now immensely unpopular with the the general middle and lower classes of Rome, he organises Julius Caesar's funeral and he reads out the will. Now, in the will, and this is a little bit of a shock, I don't know how did this happen, maybe this was for, uh, sorry, it definitely wasn't doctored, but it was just a case of, it's it's so surprising, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody thought it was forged. Mark Antony's pretty much given nothing, which is really unusual. Almost all of Julius Caesar's wealth and command of his legions goes to this relatively unknown nobody who's just a relative of, the th- it, like, who won the genetic lottery Octavian. 
Um, uh, funnily enough, in the event of Octavian's death, most of it would have gone to Brutus. <laughs> that clause was just there, I think, so Brutus would die of embarrassment in I revenge, know. like from beyond the grave. That's just, ah, Yeah. That's going to make you feel bad. Yeah, it's really kind of crappy. <laughs> and also announced in the will, Octavian would be adopted posthumously by Julius Caesar himself and effectively would become the son of Caesar. Now, this little extra clause at the end, by giving him all of his estate, the command of the legions, this is a big surprise, but that little extra icing on top of, you're now technically my son, it's like, well, I don't really like the Senate because, you know, they killed my pa and and I got to get my vengeance. But it really leans the loyalty of the legions that would have been fanatically loyal to Julius Caesar a good bit loyal to Mark Antony, but now they're like, but now we need to kind of be loyal to the son of Caesar as opposed to directly to Antony. In response to all of this will reveal and information, Octavian decides to declare Julius Caesar is a god, therefore making himself conveniently the son of a god. Uh, so he's, he's, he's almost immediately a Herculean kind of figure of like, oh, wow, well, if my dad's a god, well, I guess I'm the son of a god or at least some kind of a demigod. Just to mention, the Romans took adoption a little bit different from us. It was almost like you adopt, you're immediately in the family. Genetics be damned. I take it that be, you know, adoption didn't involve some deification typically, though. This was a unique circumstance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when Julius Caesar died, this is kind of a cool little hyper coincidence. There was a red comet like streaking across the sky. So that even solidified more this idea of like, wow, a divine figure has passed away. And, um, and you know, maybe the Senate shouldn't have killed him. <laughs> so, so after the death of Caesar... Mark Antony is still the most powerful individual in Rome. He is now he has gone from position two to position one, but he is slowly losing report. He, after the death of uh, Julius Caesar, makes a really shaky, loose alliance with the Senate and with the um, with the conspirators of like, uh, I won't go at you if you don't go at me, which really pisses off the legions who are like, well, you know. The guy we were fanatically loyal to is dead and you're not even, you know, immediately counter purging or doing something. It's, it's kind of like, ah, well, you know, let bygones be bygones, turn the other cheek. It's like, that's not cool for what has just happened here. We're not really cool, cool with that. Now, Octavian takes a little bit of a different, a different shake up to it and doesn't really agree with it. And two of Antony's veteran legions defect to Octavian. They're like, ah, you know. It's better to be with the son of Julius Caesar than it is to be with the guy who's kind of compromising. So after this, Mark Antony is the consul of Rome at the time, but his consulship is about to be up. And when you're in Rome and you have a consulship, which is very similar to a presidency, and it's finished, you're kind of scooted into another position called a proconsul, which is like a governor of a state or controller of a particular area. Now, Mark Antony would have gotten Macedonia, but he decided he would actually prefer to have Cisalpine Gaul. Now, conveniently, that place was under control by Brutus. Not the Brutus who murdered Julius Caesar, but his brother. And this is both a kind of a... It's it's something that for Mark Antony himself, it's going to give him technically a better province to be in control of, but he kind of doesn't really have any just cause to declare that this is the one he's going to take. And it really ticks off uh, Cicero. Uh, who declares that Mark Antony is an enemy of the state, that he shouldn't be allowed to do this. Uh, So because Mark Antony 
is declared now an enemy of the state. That leads us into a battle called the Battle of Forum Gallarum. So Octavian gets his legions and merges them with the new consul, Panza, to take on Mark Antony, funnily enough, in the name of the Republic. So <laughs> Octavian, whose uh, new father has pretty much responsible for destroying the Republic, is like, I want to bring back the Republic along with Panza. We're going to do this. This is this is what we're fighting for. And Mark Antony is the enemy of the Republic and the enemy of the of the Senate. And we're fighting for, you know, the right to vote, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so there are two consuls in charge here, Panza and uh, Hirtius. And Hirtius and Panza effectively turn to, and rightfully so, turn to the young Octavian and say, listen, you might have a lot of legions, but this is a consular army that will be controlled by consuls. You're taking a back seat. You've got a junior position. You are like a minor officer. Uh, you don't really know how to run or operate this. So let's have let's have absolutely no illusions about this, rich boy. We're in charge. Um, now that would turn out to be probably a pretty good idea because spoiler for a little bit, but Octavian is not really a good commander, and he never really will become that. What makes Octavian that little bit special is he seems to be able to surround himself with very very competent people in all marks of life. And that seems to be an absolutely invaluable ability. That combined with a little bit of luck, that really makes him become the top dog at the end. But I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself. So, with that in mind, we have the two, the consular army, ready to take on Mark Antony, ready to blow him out of the water, and ready to really take him on. Panza and Hirtius are very conscious that Mark Antony is a pretty competent commander for whoever is left. Remember, we've had a lot of civil wars, a lot of pretty good guys. Julius Caesar, for example, he's gone. Um, a lot of his other sub-commanders who would have been very competent are gone. Uh, Pompey got his head cut off in Egypt. So <laughs> the best of the best and the cream of the crop are pretty much... We're, we're, we're playing with the, the B team here at the moment. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Hirtius is deciding, I should wait for Panza. Let's play this thing safe. Let's make sure we outnumber Mark Antony. Make sure we got our stuff together. And Octavian, you've got one very simple job. You just need to mind the camp and make sure nothing goes wrong. So Mark Antony, realizing that, uh, you know, I'm probably going to be outnumbered. So he decides to surprise attack Panza. So here we'll talk about the first part of the uh, Battle of the Forum Gallium. So Cahill, do you want to go into some of the information, some of the stats about it, and what really the history machine thinks about what's going on here? Yeah, so this is the first battle we're getting into with the history machine for this episode. And this one did not like Mark Anthony's chances overall. It gave him about a 38% chance to win. Now, this is, he did have the advantage of this was an ambush, this was a surprise mm -hmm. attack on Panzer's army. However, despite this, his army was really only about half the size of Panzer's army. And, uh, you know, while while it was a lot more organized at the time, the other one was kind of milling around camp, his was ready to go. You know, it, it's not fully taken into account. So the history machine, mm -hmm. it didn't like his odds. It mostly just saw the size of the army and went, you know what, even with an ambush, this probably isn't enough. Mm -hmm. But uh, Anthony, Anthony pushed through and not only did he win the battle, he took about 7% fewer casualties in the process. He dealt out, the history machine expected him to take out maybe about 11% of the Roman army. Instead, he 
took out about 80% of it. Oh, wow. Of uh, Panza's army. And Panza himself was mortally wounded in the battle. So overall, a battle that, you know, they were taken by surprise. It wasn't ideal, but they should have been able to win it. Instead, Mm -hmm. Panza has lost 80% of his army. He himself is mortally wounded. Absolute disaster for Battle of Forum Galarum Part 1. So um, at this point, uh, Hirtius catches on to the to Antony's shenanigans and decides I really need to attack him before this all falls apart. So the reinforcements arrive quickly and uh, one of them is a veteran legion and they are going to pummel into Antony's exhausted veteran legions because when the first battle happened Panza had sent out messages to him because he's about 11 kilometers so that's maybe about nine miles or so away and uh, Hirtius left immediately with the legions and Antony's army now, ironically, are going to be the target of the surprise attack. They're a little bit disorganised and they're going to be attacked here in part two of this battle. So, Cahal, do you want to go into a little bit of what the history machine thinks is happening here then? Yeah, this prediction, again, it's kind of funny. It gives actually similar odds for Hirtius here as it does, you know, as it did for Mark Anthony, the first one. Um, okay. Because I guess it is, it's basically the same situation. Uh, yes. You have one much more organized army that, you know, has an ambush. But on the other hand, at this point now, Mark Anthony's army is bigger. It's not mm-hmm. as a lead and they're pretty exhausted after the first battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's very, very similar situation Oh, immediately wow. after mm. like the fact that he was only 11 kilometers away you know like you'd yeah. cover that even even with an army that has equipment to carry like you can cover that distance in mm-hmm. maybe you know a couple of hours probably you know it's, it's yeah. not that far so uh history machine yeah similar prediction thought Curtius only had about a 37 percent chance to win mm-hmm. uh it expected kind of the same casualty expected on both sides as the first one mm-hmm. The actual value was that Hirtius lost almost no one, whereas Mark Anthony's army now lost about just under half of its remaining number. So uh, these battles were (laughs) just a bit all over the place. They were way messier than expected, way bloodier than expected by the history machine. Mm -hmm. And really, I I don't think there was any real winner. Both sides probably lost a lot more men than they expected to. Mm. The anti-Anthony faction lost a commander in Panza, or would lose a commander in Panza, as he eventually succumbed to the wounds that he got in the first battle. Yeah. It was just a a kind of a mess for everyone. Yeah, pretty pretty nasty. So there actually is, after this, immediately another follow-up battle of uh, Mutinia, where Antony gets defeated again in a close contest. But this one could be kind of technically considered a draw, based on the casualties and the the initial outcome, pretty much after the Battle of Forum Gallerum, it's pretty much deemed that Antony has kind of blown it already. He, he started poorly in this civil war. It's falling apart from the consular armies gave him a hard time. He had the surprise attack, but then he got the surprise counterattack. Um, he lost quite a few troops. And it's like, he, you know, he wasn't expected to be able to pull it back together and survive it effectively. But somehow, you know, we're going to give him a little bit of credit here. He manages to do that. So effectively, after this, Antony is besieging uh, Decimus Brutus's troops. And he harasses Hirtius and Octavian's army with whatever he has remaining left of his uh, cavalry. And he avoids the open battle for as long as he can. But eventually, he's kind of forced into it. And Antony kind of comes back to the same conclusion again, even though he might be in 
kind of a, a silly situation. It's not quite working. He goes, you know, damn it, God damn it, just attack again. So it seems to be the battle plan. And this will be a common occurrence for Mark Antony. When things aren't going well, he'll just go, ah, well, I might as well attack. You know, what What have I got to lose? And the kind of spoiler is, yeah, you've got to lose pretty much everything. But it's that boldness and a little bit of daring. It's, it's almost a hot-headedness that seems to keep coming out of him that he's going to just give it a try and attack and give it give it a shot and see, see what he's going to do. Now, like the earlier battles, and we probably haven't really gone too much into this, but Octavian's participation in these battles is completely minimal. In fact, he's probably an abysmal commander here. I'm going to talk about this right now because it's going to be a very frequent theme. But whenever there seems to be a battle or a campaign or some kind of get-together, or a very important military objective that needs to be taken, Octavian kind of comes down with a sickness. He's like, oh, okay. So there's, so there's, there's two possibilities here. One, and neither of them are good. One, that frail nature that he has, that sickly nature that he kind of grew up with, and that proneness to, you know, to get ill, especially under a kind of a stressful situation, really hinders his ability to command. So the first situation is, he actually gets pretty sick and he's got to wait out in the tent. And you go, not great. It's, we're in a dire situation here. We really need you to, you know, focus up here and help out. The other option, which is probably much more worse, is he feels like the kid in the group project where we're all together and we got to work on something. And he's like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly help today. I feel really sick, man. I'm, I'm so sick. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, I'm so sick. You wouldn't believe how sick I was. I, I couldn't like I really wanted to help today, but I couldn't. It's, you know, I'll come back to you later. I would ride into battle, but it might aggravate this cold. I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Panzer, you were mortally wounded in the last battle, but I'm I'm really I'm I'm worse. I'm telling you, I'm what I have. It's worse. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? It's like this is man flu. You could not believe. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like the doctor told me I couldn't do it. You know, it's just it's, Oh my god! But but uh, so either situation is terrible. So either one, you know, he does get genuinely sick and and it's just a big problem, or two, he's just the world's worst, you know, ex- excuse. Like the guy, you know, someone who's calling in for a sick day because he wants to sit home and play video games today. It's just, it, it, it's not a good, it's not a good thing to come through, and it seems to come through all the time. Like in all, I'm going to say this now as well. The, this history is written by the winner. You know, like, if you wanted to exaggerate how brilliant he is, you know, you could be saying, oh, he was leading these armies and he was doing a fantastic job and he was the best of the best and the cream of the crop. And they're kind of saying, nah, he kind of got sick and hung out, you know, hung out in the camp for a while and didn't really do too well. So, and this will come up time and time again. So he's he's pretty, I've got to say, he's pretty pathetic. Definitely one area where he differs from his uncle is uh, that he Mm. does not play up his brilliant commanding... No, yeah, definitely not. Battles, and I'm, I'm actually quite. Good. Uh, I'm actually wondering. I wonder what what kind of crazy tutelage Julius Caesar could give you. Where like, would he be able to overcome that? We'd be like, ah, you're not. You know, ah, you're fine. Pull yourself together, <laughs> man, and <laughs> and join me here while we try and take on these horse archers. <laughs> so anyway, to go a little bit back here for the the battle of uh, the battle of Mutina, um, what exactly in all of this chaos and. In a quick immediate follow-up here with uh, Mark Antony and the Consular Armies, what does the history machine think of this battle? So this battle 
the history machine kind of knew it would be a bit messy. It kind of it's it's an unusual scenario because they're mm-hmm. you know the the lead up to it is a siege and then there's lots of skirmishing and the yes you know then the mm-hmm. Herdius army gets some more reinforcements so they can counter mm-hmm. the skirmishers and it's yeah. so I think the history machine gets a bit confused by you know the army composition keeps shifting the who has the mm-hmm. defensible position kind of keeps shifting. Mm-hmm. It only gave Herdius a 35% chance to win, which I was surprised by. But it also oh. thought that Herdius would take very, very low casualties in the process, while Mark Anthony would probably be kind of... It would be kind of a fearic victory. They would take about a quarter of, of losses. Now, it was right mm-hmm. Mark Anthony would take the, about that kind of losses. It, it is, you know, 25-30% of his army was gone. Mm-hmm. However, Herdius's army lost nearly 20% themselves. They did not have the low casualties that the history machine expected. And... Worse than that, Herdius, who, you know, had been doing pretty well as commander so far by the History Machine standing, he'd won, you know, mm-hmm. kind of against the odds, he had gotten fewer casualties than expected in the previous battle. He decided, uh, or according to certain uh, propaganda pieces after the fact, Octavian told him to go straight for Mark Anthony's tent, try and just take him out personally, and this whole thing would be over. Instead, Herdius got killed in the process. Right. So we're... You know, we've, we've had two battles so far, and both of them ended with the general going up against Mark Anthony dying. And uh, we already talked about how we were down to the B team here of Roman generals, because so many had been lost in the recent civil wars. Yes. And we've just lost, like, we were losing a general per battle here. It's not going well yeah. for those opposing Mark Anthony. We're basically left with Octavian now, even though he hasn't been taking a leading role. Now he's kind of the only one left standing. Yeah. Uh, which is why you get those propaganda pieces after the fact saying like, hey, this might be a good idea. Go on the suicide mission. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's very funny that you say that because I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit about um, about the, the after results of this. Um, but it's possible that Mark Antony, one of his goals for this battle was knowing that I'm dealing with a very young 19 year old nobody who doesn't know the pointy end of the sword from the blunt end. And uh, if all I need to do is kill some of his officer corps and then I can deal with him later, which would be like the great, I kill the enemy commanders and I I live another day and I can worry about the absolutely nobody who who seems to not be able to, you know, not be able to manage anything. I'll take care of him later. He's not a threat. Doesn't matter how many legionnaires he ends up getting under his belt. You know, as long as I'm able to take out the B team and work from there. The other possibility is, and this is a little bit conspiracy theory, even for the time it was considered, oh, this might be a possibility, that Octavian ensured that these two consuls get killed so he gets to become the most important person left. Now, as I said, we're hitting conspiracy theory territory here, but the result is because we got two dead consuls. There ain't no backup here. So Octavian returns to Rome and in default, controlling automatically by default, taking control of the remaining legions, cheekily kind of goes into Rome and asks politely, can I become consul by default? Now, when you say that and you've got that many soldiers behind you, they kind of have to say yes. So the person, whether or not that was just, I, you know, I saw an opportunity and I took it, or it was... I made sure two guys died and then I created the opportunity and took it. Um, He ends up after this by far making the most profitable situation that he is now by default the consul. So I suppose the remaining thing, you know, we we said there's there is this power vacuum after power vacuum giving Octavian role. 
one thing remaining is, you know, what about the Brutuses? They were, you know, they were on the Senate side. It was, you know, Brutus's brother who Mark Anthony had gone to try and siege down when uh, the Battle of Mutina happened. What happened to them? Well, even though officially both them and Octavian were on the Senate side, like, they really weren't. Like, there was no desire for Octavian to cooperate with them after Mark Anthony was defeated. Yeah. Um, so really everything was just left in a bit of a mess. Uh, a lot of Brutus's armies ended up defecting to Octavian and Brutus's brother who tried to flee to join Brutus on his way over there was assassinated by a Gallic chief who was loyal oh, to Christ. Mark Anthony because you know <laughs> basically he was everyone's enemy. They were just everyone's enemy at this point even oh though like they were meant to be allied with Octavian they How? would refuse to cooperate and then you have Mark Anthony who's then also now officially opposed them after earlier you know trying to kind of get on like that fell apart instantly so yeah everything's just kind of falling apart from them and it really just leaves Mark Anthony on one side and Octavian on the other. They're dropping like flies. It's mental. (laughs) (sighs) No wonder, no wonder, like I'm surprised they have enough people left over for the next part when they decide to form a triumvirate. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we'll get into it but you'll see the third member, like he's very much the, like the, the third guy. The curly of the three students. I, I really, like, you, you kind of see why he's there because there really seems to be no one else left and they no. needed a third guy to call it tri- a triumvirate. <laughs> Octavian wanted to take after Julius Caesar and oh. if Julius is triumvirate, he has to have one. It just doesn't work if it's a biumvirate. You yeah. need a third guy. It, it just doesn't It just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. So yeah. the unexpected pact occurs after this where there's going to be a formation. This is surprising because Octavian and Mark Antony are at each other's throats, but they're going to form the second triumvirate and they're going to establish it. And it's going to have Mark Antony, Lepidus, who was another in command under Julius Caesar, who history seems to treat really poorly. And we'll talk a bit about that in a moment. But uh, emergency powers were given to these three men for five years. And the intent was like, put aside your differences and just deal with Julius Caesar's assassins and get this thing under wraps. So Lepidus, who kind of seems to come out of nowhere here, is really just a member of the triumvirate to kind of, as you said, to, to fix up. You know, be the third wheel. He's there to make up the numbers. He is. He's the, he, yeah. he is. He's considered, in a lot of history, a very unremarkable, not very bright, uh, not really that crazy ambitious, no standout, no major, you know. Like, uh, he, he, realistically, he's in an incredibly powerful position and he never, ever truly takes advantage of it. Uh, he doesn't really... He doesn't really swing his weight around. He doesn't yeah. really, you know, increase his uh, his sphere of influence. He he doesn't put any pressure on Mark Antony or on Octavian. And it's kind of, those two will be at it and he'll just be kind of, you know, sitting back and taking it easy. Yeah, like I, I think even though he was a commander under Caesar and everything, he mm. was in this powerful position. He doesn't appear, it, you know, both Mark Antony and Augustus have 10 battles each in their database, which it puts them up there there are very few people who have more than that Lepidus mm-hmm. doesn't appear at all all he did was kind of he would just give the legions he was in charge of to Anthony or Octavian for them to use uh while he just kind of you know hung out yeah uh yeah some of the some of the adjectives when I looked him up that popped out from writers at the time were words like weak indecisive fickle mm-hmm. disloyal incompetent <laughs> Got cold. Um, and really, modern, like, I mean, you'll find revisionists for any argument. Everyone, you know, everyone yeah, likes to kind of, of say counter that. But really, even the modern, more revision, like, even the biggest revisionists seem to just say, like, well, he what? There are there are other people who are just as bad as him. Like, no one is really out there to defend him. It feels like, 
other people were maybe equally useless is kind of the consensus of the revisionists. It feels like they made him a member of the triumvirate as a joke. Like, it's yeah. just, it's like, what what do you do with this guy? But uh, he's he's actually also, again, he's another character made famous by William Shakespeare in the sense of he's he's the dunce character in that play as well. He He's just, he receives a pretty bad reputation throughout history. So Lepidus has one thing going for him. He's the Pontiff Maximus, which if you recognize that title, probably, you know, you're like, wait a second, does that kind of mean the Pope? You're like, yes and no. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit in detail. Julius Caesar was that, and effectively it's the head of the religious order, and uh, Lepidus was made it. And sometime during the Middle Ages... The Catholic Church kind of went, that's a really cool title. I think we should have that for the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> so that's where that's where the connection comes in. So he is, realistically, Lepidus is now like the head of, he, he's got going from, he's the head of the church and he will be until he dies. He'll keep that position. So of all the things that happens, he is like the high priest of Rome and he will be until the very, very end. So that's that's the one little calling character thing he's got that he can bring to the table. You know, something he can he can write on his American psycho business card. But but that's that's about it. So all of that in mind, we we uh, we do have now our Octavian and our Antony, and they have a crazy amount of legions sitting there, and they kind of need to pay them because if you take any lesson from this podcast from history. Um, and even from earlier podcasts, and we've we've talked about this a few times, if you have soldiers or mercenaries, you pay them. Because they can get you to a position of power and they can turn and kill you. And if you can't find a way to pay these people, you are gone. So Octavian and Antony, after having raised so many legions and are managing them and using them and effectively need to pay them, they are desperate for cash. So they decide, we're going to take a leaf out of Sulla's book and go back to prescription lists. So, so prescription lists, if you're not familiar with them, is we're going to get a list of very rich people that we think are enemies of the state. We're going to kill them and confiscate their goods. So as a result, Cicero, who's given Mark Antony a very long time, if you remember, he was the guy who declared him an enemy of the state. He gave him an old tongue lashing and really wasn't his best friend. Uh, he's killed as a result of this. It should also be noticed that, you know, from Octavian's side then as well, he was the guy that Octavian was kind of fighting on the behalf of against Mark Anthony. And then after that battle, Cicero just went and said, wasn't that a great job by Brutus holding out in that siege until he could be relieved? You know, ignore Octavian. <laughs> and I mean, in fairness, we have we do have evidence that Octavian wasn't a great commander in any yes. of these. But all the praise went to Brutus, a guy that Octavian already hated. So, uh, yeah, it, it was just Cicero did not put himself in a good position right before these guys finished up with all of the legions. Yeah, <laughs> that's mad. Now, this is funnily enough, this is where you're going to get a little crash course in in economics. By killing that many rich people who own that many bits of property and villas and setups and land and houses and homes, they actually flooded the market with property and (laughs) they crashed the price of housing and actually didn't raise as much capital as they thought they would. So even after writing these prescription lists to go, we need to raise money fast to pay these legions they didn't raise enough so they resulted to possibly one of the worst things you could do politically and went okay we're going to start taxing citizens (laughs) so new taxes to pay for the soldiers so they did have popular support from the general public because romans had minimal taxes at best it was the the provinces the areas that they conquered that they used to tax through the nose but like your general roman wouldn't really be taxed 
yeah. um, by any crazy stretch of the imagination. So this was like, hold on a second now, I'm paying for whose legions? <laughs> like, surely you should, you know, surely you should pull some coin out of some Greek guy living out in Macedonia. You're not doing it to me here. <laughs> I will say, though, all I know, as an Irish millennial right now, if they crash the property, like, property prices, <laughs> don't care how many taxes coming through, they're, like... Octavian and Anthony would get our vote, I think. They, yeah, they probably would. It's 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 ironic that right now we, we would want the invert. We'd want them to exactly do this. Um, yeah. So uh, with this power position now, we do have the new triumvirate established. And they're going to start assuming control of the empire. It's kind of like, oh, we're going to be the governors of this area. But it's not really. They're, they're actually going to be pretty much in charge of it. So Octavian assumes control of the west. Antony gets control of the east, which is probably the most lucrative and powerful position. And we'll explain why. Um, the east of the empire at the moment, even though you kind of go, surely, you know, like maybe controlling parts of Gaul or near that or parts near Italy should be worth more. They're not. The reason is the east has the most amount of money. It's got a lot of manpower sitting there with legions right now. And it is, uh, Egypt included, is pretty much a breadbasket situation. So you've got a huge amount of resources. You're also on the border of territories that you want to be conquering if you want to expand any further and um, it is considered at this time for Antony the most lucrative position to be in so Antony has control of the east Octavian has control of the west and Lepidus by default is getting North Africa so with this in mind the triumvirate with their emergency powers they're deciding that they're going to pull together a ludicrously large amount of legions to try and take out Julius Caesar's assassins and put an end to this part of, of a, you know, we'll end this civil war and hopefully that'll be all peacetime then. But um, they're going to go to Greece to fight in the Battle of Philippi. Now to talk a little bit about the Battle of Philippi, this is going to be the largest Roman battle to date. Mark Antony and Octavian are going to unite to take out Brutus. Lepidus, in all of his meritless ways, is left to take care of Italy. Just stay at home. We don't even want you coming along here. The Triumphers are going to bring 19 legions to take on 17 legions. Now, typically... This, the, the, sorry, the numbers don't even do justice there. Me just saying 19 against 17. The numbers are crazy high. There have never been this many legions pulled together for a single battle. Generally, you might see... Best case scenario, eight legions. You know, usually two to four. Depending on what the battle is, where they're fighting, what's, you know, what groups of people they're fighting. The numbers are insane. This is why they had to kill a lot of rich people and sell a lot of houses and then tax citizens anyway. The numbers are outrageously high. So trying to even manage this army when they land near Philippi, they're going to divide it literally into two. They're going to go, I'm going to take control of half the army you're going to take control of the other half and we're going to try and manage this crazy amount of numbers. Now, the Roman military system gets a lot of credit for having the centurions, for having the officer classes, for having, you know, its prefects and its structure and it's, kind of, and it's very organised and it's very pretty and it's very nice to draw out with your graphs and, and, uh, and placement and, you know, drop down and plop your soldiers. It's super organised. But this point, this number, 19 legions, is going to be a chaotic mess. 
And they don't do what modern militaries do. Modern militaries that have numbers this large, uh, a modern army would have several generals and several lieutenants and several, the, the chain of command gets much more detailed. But here we're looking at, we've got our, we've got our regular Romans, we've got our centurions, and then we've got like our lead centurion, and then we've got, you know, our commander. And that it, it's so they're managing a crazy volume of people. Mark Antony is effectively going to take on the veteran part of the other legions and Augustus or Octavian, we'll call him Augustus, the name is a little bit interchangeable, but Octavian is going to take the other half of the army and take on Brutus. So it's going to be two amateur commanders against fighting off against each other and then you're going to have your veteran commanders fighting off against each other. So it's kind of still a little bit 50-50 in this sense. Now, as I said, the numbers are crazy. And they're not even sure exactly what to do straight away. So Mark Antony decides for this battle, I'm going to start secretly building along a swamp and I'm going to try and swing around the enemy army. And to do that, you know, I'm going to get the legionaries day and night, they're building away, they're going to build these palisades, they're going to be covered by the swamp marshes, it's going to be very hard to see them. And somewhere along the way, they're found out. And as they're found out, counter bills are built to prevent this this envelopment so the roman soldiers as as good as they are as soldiers they're also excellent engineers and builders so they're going to build a lot of fortifications a lot of you know traps a lot of sets a lot of um uh, rampart like they're really really good at this um they've got that little extra bit of super soldiery in them so at this point when we've got the building and we've got the counter building Anthony just goes, you know, when in doubt, attack. That's he's, he's going back to this yeah. kind of thing. I, uh, I'm i going to engage the experienced commander uh, and I'm going to deal with this. Now, this is going to be a very interesting battle in the sense of we can break it down into several little engagements. So it's a huge battle with two fully professional armies and Mark Antony is going to take on the experienced side and Octavian is going to take on Brutus in the other side. So, Cahal, do you want to go into these two battles and explain what's going to happen with the Antony-Octavian faction against uh, the, the Brutus faction? So, I think the way we split this up for the History Machine was, you know, as, as they divided into two, we have one battle, which was Octavian, and the other with Mark Antony. Octavian's battle, this is the first one we've had now where this is him, maybe as head commander, mm-hmm. and here's where we see him not do so great. Um, mm-hmm. Now it did have the odds against him. History Machine had about seventy four percent. Oh my god! In favor of Marcus Junius Brutus. You know they they are professional armies on both yes. sides. Like it's very tough Rover's Rome, and in this case, it swung towards him. What it did underestimate was how many casualties Augustus would take. It had him take about twenty percent more than expected. And I mean, we know this is tough terrain. There are all these counterforts built up, and it's an it's a colossal army. This is an inexperienced general trying to command. A huge army, like before there's any form of radio communications, things like that. It's a crazy thing to organize. And he loses about 20% more than the history machine expected. When you have these huge numbers, that's a lot of people. Wow. That's maybe a lot fewer people to pay at the end of the day, but it's, it's Still. a big chunk. He doesn't do great here. That's pretty, yeah. Now, just just to mention, we have mentioned a couple of times that, that Octavian is considered, and remember, history is written by the winner here. Like, in, they could have said he was fantastic, but he's pretty much down as like, ah, he's not a good commander. They don't say he's the worst thing ever, you know, <laughs> the worst thing ever, ever. But he's pretty he's pretty close in what what we see, because during this battle, he pretty much hides away and hides out and like hopes that, you know, buries his head in the sand, hope, hopes this hopes this comes out OK or he's or it's not going to work for him. But meanwhile, like 
Anthony's going to win his side of it. So this can be like a 50-50 where Octavian blows it and, and Anthony saves it. And Octavian is just, he's a liability here. You, the last thing you want to do is give him more troops. But with all of that in mind, Mark Antony here then, Cahill, do you want to go into how well he performed in comparison to Augustus? Yeah, so Mark Antony does a lot better here. And he is, you know, we've had him in multiple different battles where he is kind of the main mm. commander. He's definitely the more experienced. We've already had other examples where he won against the odds. Here, History Machine only gave him a 30% chance to win. Oh, wow. Okay. The casualty numbers are much closer to the expectation here. He, um, yeah, he deals out about 5% more. He loses maybe 10% less than expected. Um, all in all, much more managed. And really, like, as we said, these are, you know, civil wars. It's kind of Romans versus Romans. You don't really want to annihilate the enemy army necessarily because you could be then stuck trying to lead them down the road. Yeah, that's uh, true. So having the more modest casualty numbers is probably a good political move. But um, overall, yeah, he... He massively overperforms. He's able to compensate for Augustus here, winning well against the odds. And again, this is against some of the more experienced commanders on the other side too. So mm-hmm. just beating them uh, is a very good sign. That's pretty good. So in summary, Mark Antony like, has fewer casualties than would have been expected. And Augustus has much more casualties than would have been expected. Another thing to mention as well, just as a bit of a side note, because there's so many troops here, it's noted that like, dust and clouds and and um, the visibility is so minimal because there's so many people and there's literally so much dust being kicked up by people moving around. There's pretty much limited vision in the area. There's not much that could be done here to see things. So it's it's a bit of a chaotic mess and a chaotic blob. And it's almost a bit of a, of a miracle. More crazy situations didn't come out of it. But after this, uh, the first battle of Philippi, there is a second battle of Philippi. And this results in a complete defeat of Brutus, who is now in charge of the remaining armies. Because of this battle, Brutus is going to end up losing, and he's going to fall on his sword on the battlefield. Mark Antony comes out of this and he wins. He is now the most powerful man in Rome, once once this happens, and Octavian takes a little bit of a backseat to it. But this defeat of Brutus, effectively the ending of the Assassins of Caesar, it puts Mark Antony at like a pinnacle point of his career. This, funny, he probably at the time didn't think, he probably like, okay, it's all going to go up for Mark Antony now. You know, the conspiracies are beaten. I'm probably going to go and invade Parthia. You know, things are, it's all looking Antony at the, at the moment. But uh, this is actually, funnily enough, if you get a time machine, you can go back. This is the high point of his career. Oh yeah. And uh, just to touch on History Machine's opinion of this battle. This is another one. Mark Antony did way better than the odds. He was given 34% to win. Casualty numbers were pretty similar. He took a little bit less than expected. He dealt out a bit more than expected, but it was another really good win for Mark Anthony. But, and this is probably, you know, again, leading towards his downfall, Augustus is also listed as one of the commanders on this side. He may not have been the main one, but he's in there and he's getting his stats boosted by by these battles. Oh, God. So... Just to let you know, listeners, about it. The numbers we're going to give from are probably superly high ranked, as in he's a terrible person, but he's involved in a group project. And what could have been an A, he's bringing it down to a C. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, so we go like, how could you say he scored a C in this? The man should, you know, he, he's failed every exam he's ever taken. It's like, well, if you get the averages of all the scores, he's actually doing this. So he, like, he's actually bringing down Mark Antony's score and Mark Antony is bringing up his. He's basically, yeah, he's the guy... 
the group project goes great, even though he just does no work. And then when the, you know, for posterity, they're like, could you rate your other uh, co-workers on this group project after the fact? He's going behind their backs and he's like <laughs> saying like, I actually, I did. This was me. This was my doing, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So because uh, Brutus dies, Mark Antony and Octavian actually get a hold of his body. Now, Mark Antony, in a real kind of uh, stoic, ironically august kind of a way, hmm. treats the body with respect. He covers it with his cloak, and you know he's like, "Oh, you know, valiant falling and the enemy," and oh, you know, it's 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 such a romantic, real moment. But Octavian, just to get a little glimpse into what this psycho is like, so Octavian decides to mutilate Brutus's body, cut off the head, and return it to Rome, kind of as a trophy. Like the guy's a, the guy's quite chaotic. I wouldn't want to be on his bad side when because when he, he feels like a you know a kid who tortures a bug. So any position of power he gets into, he really hammers at home, and that'll show up a little bit here and there and again. And once again, this history is written by the winner, so he could have been a lot more chaotic and a lot more sadistic than he's being made out to be. But this is the way that he treats the body of Brutus. Um, now with all of this in mind. The crazy volume of legionnaires that are now left. When Romans normally conquer an area, they distribute some wealth to soldiers. So, you know, what Julius Caesar would have done when they went to Gaul. We raise the legions, we come to an area, we take over it, we, you know, we defeat the various armies, uh, we strip it of wealth and slaves, we make some money, we bring that back to Italy, we settle some soldiers on some new land or buy some land or get some land allocated from the state. They get to become some kind of, you know, farmers and live out their lives at the end of the day at that. They have a couple of kids, we get some new legionnaires in the next generation and then whatever wealth is pulled from that country is added to the, the coffers and the general, usually through a little bit of corruption gets themselves very wealthy and we rinse repeat that cycle so they did it like when they went to Spain they did it when they went to parts of Africa they did it when they went parts of Asia when they went to Greece when they went to Gaul yeah. so as long as Rome can keep expanding everything is fine yes very much but so but it cannot stop yeah. or things start to go wrong they yeah they're like they're like a they're like a mako shark or something that it needs to keep swimming or if they don't they'll die it just has to keep happening normally that's what happens but because this is a civil war like every person they kill, they're not taking a new territory. They weren't really historically taxing other Romans. They were taxing the crap out of the other uh, provinces. But they're not generating any new wealth by conquering territories for these new veterans. So what do we need to do here? Because we've got a really bad position where we've taken, you know, we, we've had big battles with the largest number of legionnaires ever assembled and we literally don't have a way to pay these people. Like, we haven't made any new wealth. It's not like suddenly when we're finished here, we've conquered a new country. That hasn't happened. So Octavian finds himself in an awkward position where i got to retire some of these uh, veteran legions. And what have I got to do with it? So in a real totalitarian way, he very simply goes to parts of South Italy, finds some farmers and goes, you're out of here. And pretty much settles some grizzled veterans and they distribute and chalk up some some territory for them and they say, hey, listen, you're a veteran of um, of these campaigns. This is your new farm in Italy. You know, you got your several acres. Enjoy, settle, set up your life. Now, <laughs> nothing is really like these farmers that land is just taken from. They're not compensated. It's like you're just poor now. And if you if you don't like it, there's literally a professional murderer who, who now took your stuff. And he's not exactly going to be very keen to give it back. Um <laughs> Now, this leads to an awkward position because the Romans had this kind of idea that 
a, a good it's kind of a good farmer makes a good soldier and a good soldier makes a good farmer it's not really the case these guys most of the veterans would have been landless people anyway who were fighting in the legions in the hopes of getting land and then imagined that this retirement was going to be something like i just stay on a farm i've got a few grapevines i have a handful of slaves and i just sit down and start sipping wine for the end of my days they don't realize that actually farming requires quite a bit of work and they've never really done it before. So you end up getting rich areas of Italy that normally produce quite a bit of food, now left with people who don't know how to actually farm, and then also ousting a lot of people who could produce a lot of agricultural food. They're now effectively like unemployed, don't have anywhere to live, or now the poor people are adding to a situation. And that means that Octavian has inadvertently, by doing this, just created a famine. It's it's replacing these high production, high efficiency, like breadbasket of the country with these like big country estates where maybe they do a bit of farming as a hobby type thing. It's it is not a good way to no, do this. No, it's not. And it's 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 a it's a bit of a double edged sword because if if Octavian didn't do this, he probably would have been strung up and hung, and that's it, and it's done. And these these uh, wandering legions probably would have just torn through Italy, tearing up things and robbing, and become bandits on the way. You know, the several tens of thousands of them that would have been doing it. Um, so it's it's a pretty uh, it does trigger it does trigger a famine. But at this point, we now because of it do still have a moment of relative peace. Now, this piece is partially ended when Mark Antony's brother, uh, Lucius, puts Rome under siege. Now, this is very, very unexpected, and it's not sure if Mark Antony himself has any connection to this. He could have. It's kind of hinted. Nothing is really certain. But who stopped this and who enters the brand new kind of BFF of Octavian here? who pretty much, this is going to be the guy who's responsible for why he gets to stay in charge, why he's on top, and why he ends up becoming the first emperor of Rome. We're going to introduce you to a fellow called Agrippa. Now, Agrippa and Octavian were childhood friends, and they are polar opposites. Octavian was kind of a gawky, sickly, who had one good ability, and that was like being able to make relationships and friends. Agrippa is your stereotypical jock-like character he's you know he he never met a soldier he didn't impress he you know he's physically strong he's fit he's charming he's extroverted he's you know he's everything the romans want you to be in in a in an outgoing charismatic commander and in this strange where opposites attract the two of them end up becoming really good buddies and agrippa's success and octavian's success are kind of linked arm in arm Agrippa doesn't seem to have that political, you know, je ne sais quoi that Octavian has, but Octavian definitely doesn't have any of that military ability. And as we've seen earlier, the B team's pretty much dead. So if it's just left with a sickly Octavian, I can't get involved in this, leading the armies, we're in a pretty bad position. So you need a good commander, and of all the things Agrippa is, he is a good commander. So what he does is he resolves this siege, but in the process... And this seems to be a characteristic of Agrippa. He doesn't mind going, I'll do it. And I don't mind if you want to take the success, which is all Octavian wants to do. <laughs> so Agrippa resolves the siege. But in response, Octavian's reputation kind of goes up because of it. It's like, well, Octavian stopped this. So, Carl, what does the history machine think of this siege here? And what is the outcome of it, really? 
So this siege, like, this is, I think, sums up, like, where Augustus shines, which is he gets, he delegates very, very well. And he's, he is a good strategist. He's just not a mm-hmm. good tactician. So in this case, you know, because of forward planning, he has everyone kind of on side and everything. He comes in with an army that was nearly three times the size. History Machine, it just knows he's going to win. Like, it's a 94% chance he's going to win this. There's no issue there. Yes. But because he has a very, very good general to help sort out the tactics here in Agrippa, they take about 35% fewer casualties than the History Machine thought oh, they would wow. and deal out about 80% more. This is everything coming together for Augustus in here. This is his strategy coming in with his buddy's tactics. Oh, that's excellent. So, like, I, I know we're, we're throwing out percentages, like, you know, the 80%, the 35 that are, but in mind, it's like you've highly outnumbered the enemy, which in reality, you go, ah, you, you pretty much have this one nailed down. But the, even based on the results, the history machine's like, this one was a good win, but he won way more than he should have won. And even with the outnumbering, you're like, ah, well, he... You know, he should take a, only a few casualties. He takes 35% less than what they would, even with the, even with that advantage of the, the three to one ratio, he takes 35% less than you would think he should have taken. So this Agrippa is well able to actually use the numerical advantage very well. He's actually like, the more you give him, the better he's getting. Like the more troops you give him, the better he manages them. Which is it's kind of it's that's crazy impressive. It's a, it's a total walkover. So yeah, I got, gotta say, uh, it's it's a good horse to back on now. This this two punch combination of Agrippa and Octavian. Anyway, just a little bit of a, a note because this is going to be you know there's a couple of sequence of events that are going to happen that are going to lead to all of this kind of tying together. The proconsul of Gaul dies, and the proconsul of Gaul is actually fairly loyal to Mark Antony, and Octavian just kind of steps in there and takes Gaul. He's like, well, this is kind of mine now. <laughs> now, this, <laughs> it's it's kind of not just a, a bagsy or, you know, shotgun. You can't call it shotgun on a country, but, you know, he gave it a try. This ticks off Mark Antony and, you know, we we got to come to some kind of agreement of what exactly is going to happen. You can't just keep, you can't just take a province every time somebody dies. <laughs> you know, it, it's not really allowed. Um, but with all of that, all of that happening, we're going to turn to somebody who's relatively unknown so far. We haven't mentioned him at all. He'll have a fairly famous name. It will make sense. And you kind of go, how is this guy ignored for such a long time? This is going to be Sextus Pompey. And if that sounds familiar, it's because he is Pompey the Great's son. He decides, with a bit of a Roman fleet and some pirates as well, he takes control of Sicily. And in the process, he prevents food shipments to Rome and he's going to create a famine. So this is going to create food shortages, riots, and potential political upheaval for Octavian. Because Octavian might be that little bit of a mastermind when it comes to political intrigue. But to think about it, and this is another little lesson of life. If you have starving, riotous, rebellious citizens, they don't really care who's in charge if they're not being fed. They will oust you and take care of you. Um, so this is one of the most dangerous positions Octavian has ever been in. And it's all because Sextus Pompey effectively has created this blockade and is stopping food shipments from coming from Sicily. So let's talk a little bit about Sextus. He is Pompey the Great's son. He has this very over-the-top persona. He starts wearing an ultramarine blue cloak. And he becomes a disciple of Neptune. So he's very much kind of like, I am the sea commander. I am, you know, the, the god of the the god of the sea favors me. It's it's this real kind of 
it's this real cool blue personality he's got going on here. Uh, meanwhile, Octavian kind of just takes Spain from Lepidus. You see, he's got this whole, I just like taking provinces. <laughs> um, and uh, there's there's going to still be this awkward and brief peace between Octavian and, and, and Antony. And they come to an agreement, even though like he's taking provinces all around him. Out of the political negotiations with the madness, uh, Octavian is still left with Gaul as part of the deal. Now, once again, because Mark Antony still has control of the East... He is still, even after losing Gaul, in the most advantageous position of the members of the Triumvirate. So he still has the most, you know, he still has the most troops. He still has the most funds. He still has the most prospect for, like, economic growth and for expansion. Octavian might come out of this like, I'm in a better position because I got Gaul and now I've also taken, just taken Spain from Lepidus. Antony is still the strongest uh, partner. Now... As part of some of these negotiations, our, our friend Sextus here is going to lift the blockades he's introduced to Italy. And in response, or as a part of a negotiation, he's officially given control of Sicily and part of Greece. Now, Antony controls the east. So even though uh, Sextus is made like uh, he's made the governor of Greece, he doesn't really fully control it, but he has that political position. But now they have kind of acknowledged Sextus as like, you're not just a guy with some, you know, with a, with a Roman fl- fleet and some pirates. You are now a person who we will legally recognize is in control of these areas. So he is now a player on the board and officially recognized. It's an awkward situation. And eventually things fall apart politically and Sextus is going to return to the blockades, thus giving the Romans a hard time. Now, with this in mind, and it's not the best, Octavian goes, all right, time for me to really take the initiative and I'm going to strike at Sextus. But because it's Octavian who tries it, he really blunders at the attempt and he's lucky to be alive. (laughs) Because of this, Octavian has an agreement with Antony and he says, I need to combat Sextus. He's a problem. He might not be a problem to you just yet, but he probably will be in the long term. But to do this, what I really, really need is ships. And what you really, really need are legionnaires because you're planning to invade Parthia and you're trying to raise troops. So how about you give me ships now and I'll give you troops later? And Antony agrees to it. But spoiler for this, these soldiers are never going to be given to Antony. So it was kind of a, it's a one-way paying, paying system. So because Octavian has really dropped the ball trying to deal with Sextus and shouldn't have diverged from, you know, the, the one-two punch formula here we've got going, Agrippa takes control. He is a consul at the time. He builds up a fleet and he is going to defeat Sextus at the Battle of Nolicus. Now, just a note about this battle. Agrippa's ships, because they're newly built, are pretty much top of the line, which is probably going to help explain the win and why some of these figures come out. Now, you can make a counter-argument that Sextus's troops are very well experienced and that kind of compensates a little bit for that. But we're going to see a very interesting battle where you put Agrippa literally, you know, at the at the helm of the ship here and he's going to find a way to deal with the Sextus problem. So, Carl, what does the history machine think of this naval battle with Agrippa dealing with Sextus? So the history machine, and this is a, it, it's worth noting, it came up in the last season as well, it is never that great with naval battles at predicting winners. By their nature, they're more unpredictable, like navies, especially in this era, they could just sink on their way to the battle. So it often swings wildly. 
in terms of how it picks a winner. And on average, it always predicts maybe 5 to 10% higher casualties in naval battles than land battles. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, it was off. It, it picked a side. It picked incorrectly. It went for Sextus probably having close to an 88% chance to win. Jesus. It really thought... And I think, again, it maybe it understood maybe his navy was bigger. It didn't understand how much better the individual ships were on Agrippa's side because mm-hmm. they're brand new. It knew they were better, but not by how much. Yes. Uh, you know, Pompey, a lot of his armies kind of bolster, you know, by, as said, like maybe pirate armies, things like mm-hmm. that, uh, which are going to be smaller. Um, it did predict higher casualties than it normally would for this one. It thought maybe both sides would lose almost 20% of their army. Mm-hmm. And in this way, it was quite a bit closer to the mark. Um, okay, okay. Though Agrippa uh, did manage to lose fewer than that. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't the cleanest battle, but Agrippa did a good job. He didn't lose as many as he should again. And, uh, yeah, another, another win for Octavian in that he just, he knew who to delegate to and he knew who to... Borrow shit from basically. You know where to borrow <laughs> stuff from. Uh, that's excellent. Yep. So Sextus is pretty much dealt with, but this is going to be a little interesting thing as well. As a byproduct to this Mediterranean defeat, Lepidus gains control of part of the Mediterranean, particularly uh, Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. Right now, you would think with a more this this is probably why he gets so much slander. If this was a Julius Caesar or someone else who goes, yeah, I've just found myself in control of Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica and I'm part of the triumvirate. It's like you really have, you know, chips to negotiate with at the table here. But he doesn't capitalize on the strength of position, right? And how this goes wrong for Lepidus is Octavian sends some men into Lepidus's camp and Lepidus's men desert him. So he he clearly didn't have that level of um, of, of uh, political following or charm or like, jeez, uh, he, oh, he's just he's not a very competent person at all. So he he's men desert him. He's left in a pretty abysmal state, and then Octavian has Lepidus stripped of pretty much all of his powers, only leaving him with the religious title of Pontifus Maximus, and Lepidus is completely neutered. And he's going to spend the rest of his days living out in exile as the head priest of Rome. And that's it. You are no longer a player. You're no longer a piece on the chessboard. You're not really any sort of threat in any situation. In fact, you are so little of a threat, we won't even bother to kill you. We'll just let you live away and do what you want to do. So all we got left now is Antony and Octavian as two threats to each other. And Antony still has the most valuable region of the empire. And Octavian now is kind of going, time to play a new game. I'm trying to conspire a little bit here and see where to go so that I can go and take care of Antony and make this whole thing just under Octavian. So now, uh, we touched on this a little bit, but Antony, for the longest time, has been planning an invasion of Parthia. So, Roman action in Parthia. We had Crassus pull together a very large army, a very cavalry-heavy army, (laughs) and fail abysmally. We also had Julius Caesar pretty much, you know, on before he's brutally stabbed to death, has plans ready to roll in there, claim back those standards, and um, probably annex some territory from the Parthians. And now Mark Antony's going to give it a shot. So this seems to be some kind of, like, cursed monkey paw situation, trying to invade Parthia. Uh, it just doesn't seem to go too well. Antony's been trying to get this off the ground for some time. He needs to get enough troops to do it. 
He joins with Cleopatra because Cleopatra has a lot of wealth and resources and she's going to really help him fund this campaign because if you're going to pull together a lot of legionnaires and a lot of auxiliary troops, you're going to need the money to pay them. And especially if there's going to be a long-term, you know, slug through a desert kind of a situation, you want to have your logistics set up. You want to make sure everything's going to run smoothly. And in order to do that, you're definitely going to need some coin. So Antony, while he's getting busy with some business in the West because of all of the nonsense that's been happening, the Parthians do take some regions in the East. Now, it's not going well at all for Antony and it's definitely not going to get any better because Octavian is spreading all of these rumours that he is just falling into hedonism, that he's becoming corrupt, that he's, you know, he's getting lazy, that he, you know, he's he's becoming much more... Um, He's becoming like a a tool of of a lot of these Eastern rulers. And Antony, with all of that in mind and dealing with all of these extra problems on top, he's going to try and get 100,000 troops, pull them together and march towards East and take Syria. So Antony's ultimate plan, if we look at like, what's the plan for actually going into Parthia? What's, What's the goal? He wants to take back those standards that were lost. He wants to probably annex some territory and maybe make some kind of uh, make some kind of deal with the Parthians. Whether that's like, oh, you know, if it goes super well, you take the whole thing, which is really ambitious. Or maybe you, they might become a client state, or maybe you know they they might have a some kind of treaty with Rome upon the point that's really Roman favorable. But that's the plan. But it's not going to go well, and it's not going to go well. Similar to when Crassus was marching to Parthia, they're going to be blindly led by very unloyal guides who don't really have any interest in Rome. So there are engagements involved in in Antony's invasion of Parthia, but because of the whole thing, it's going to have a long-term eventual retreat. So there's small minor engagements. The whole thing is going to be kind of grouped together as him invading Parthia, trying to get something done in this absolute mess, and he's going to lose thousands of men to attrition. So, Cahal, do we have some figures on Antony's invasion of Parthia and what the history machine just thinks of how well he went through it or didn't? So, yeah, this one is... History machine would have recommended he doesn't go to war in Parthia, basically. It did think, because he has such a huge army, you know, 100,000 troops, it does think he'll win it. It expected him to win it. It gave him maybe about 75% chance. Mm -hmm. But... It expected him along the way to lose about a third of his army because oh, wow. he is fighting an army that is like, it's all like cavalry and missile archers. And like at a time where there's just, there's very little kind of good ways to fight against missile cavalry and heavy cavalry. And that's basically most of what he's fighting. Yes. So it does think like, it does think he should have won it, but it expected him to do very, very badly casualty wise. And while, um, yeah, he does... Like, it does expect there to be it to be bloody on both sides, and he does deal out the casualties that are expected, maybe. He loses a lot of men here. So, yeah, it's it's not... It just, it feels like it wasn't the best move. It wasn't the best use of his... What were pretty vast resources at the time. It's definitely weakened him. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty... It's a pretty poor invasion. Now we'll we'll come back to we'll come back to the Parthians and we'll come back to the shenanigans that happen in Parthia, particularly from the Roman side. But it it's a pretty poor invasion. It makes one think how well could it have gone for Julius Caesar? He's probably he's a he's a better commander. He's probably a better organizer. Maybe he had a little bit of a secret plan up his sleeve that would have been a lot more different to what Antony was planning to do. But it just seems to be a pretty bad idea to invade Parthia at, at this time. And, you know, 
the results show. But meanwhile, Octavian has a couple of successes in the Balklands. So he's looking good. His reputation's all right. He's keeping okay. And Antony had also married Octavian's sister. So this is to make sure things keep okay. You know, we're, we're all friends here. You're going to marry my sister. This is what you're going to do. But um, Antony at this point is actually sick of her. And he likes hanging around with Cleopatra. And he has a set of twins with Cleopatra. So he just sends home his wife. He's like, yeah, go, go back to Italy. I don't really need to deal with you. And, and he also names Caesarian as the heir of Caesar. Of all the things you could do to Octavian, the last thing you want to do is say, hey, your dad, he had another legitimate son and this is him. And probably he should be in charge and he's the legitimate one. And maybe you should just, you know, retire or do something or go the way of Lepidus. But that's... That's not the best thing to do. You know, the, te- the tensions are going to be at a boiling point here now. So Antony keeps, spre- uh, sorry. So Octavian keeps spreading tales of Antony's excessive hedonism. And he claims, all right, hold on. Antony, right, wants to be a king, which as Romans, that's not cool, right? Uh, let alone that, he wants to be a king, but he's also a puppet of Cleopatra. Yeah. So even if he was king, he wouldn't be in charge of it. And also he's, he's, he's uh, hedonistic. So he's, He's probably getting pretty fat and drunk all the time, you know? Don't don't want him in charge. They want somebody like me. <laughs> so, um, Octavian, kind of illegally, releases the contents of Antony's will in Rome. And he releases it because it's quite scandalous for what it's going to be. Because it leaves lands to his kids, his two children, that is, with Cleopatra. It also states that Antony should be buried in Egypt. So, holy crap, we have evidence the guy's gone native. Like, he ain't Roman no more. He wants to live in Alexandria. He wants to be buried there. That's not cool. And and uh, because of all this, war were declared. So, Antony and Octavian turn each other. It's like, hey, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, unwrapping all these legal documents. And he's like, hey, you should be buried. You shouldn't be buried in Egypt. So, <laughs> so, um. This is going to lead up to a big build-up of troops, and Octavian, rightfully so, is not going astray from the formula. He's about to bring his best buddy. He's about to bring the guy who's able to manage the army with him. You know, it doesn't matter how many troops we bring, we want to make sure we can bring the guy who is actually able to manage these troops, you know? We need we need to get the guy who scores the A on the project here. So Agrippa is going to come along to this, and we're going to have a look at the Battle of Actium. Now, there's a couple of things to note about the Battle of Actium in total. So it, it is located uh, in Greece, right? And Antony's fleet are placed a little bit too east. So realistically, if he was invading and they're having this war, he probably should have moved them closer to Italy. So, you know, bridge the gap a little bit, not, you know, uh, have that little bit more of movement, maybe put the Italians under a bit more pressure. It's kind of old school advice from Hannibal. If you want to, you know, take a war to the Romans, you take it to Italy. You know, you, you should really fight, you know, fight it on the home ground, you know, take care of them, make sure that you put put them under a lot of pressure here. You don't want to give them space to breathe. So he doesn't do that. And maybe this is due to some kind of logistical constraints. You know, if you're the further you go from Egypt, the further you have to transport your goods and your logistics uh, train will have to go further. So it it's messy. So it's probably why he does this. But his result for where he goes here. This is going to be like in a chess idea. It's a bit of a blunder. You shouldn't have done this because by not putting the pressure on the Italians here, Agrippa is going to be able to block you in. And he does. He sees that opportunity. 
he sees that opening and he shoots right through it. So when Agrippa puts him under this blockade and puts him under that pressure and kind of envelops him, Antony has more troops than Agrippa. But because of this, because of this blockade, because of this surrounding by Agrippa, he's going to lose a lot of troops to to just general desertion. A lot of them are going to die of disease. And eventually, he's going to have officers in the army who are going to look around and kind of go, we're not, you know, we could have been in a great position. We blew it. We're like, the war, this hasn't even started yet. We've kind of blown it. Okay. We really found ourselves in a bad position. And I don't really see a way out of this. So I'm no longer going to bet on this horse. I really think that Octavian Agrippa, that combination... They're the place to be. So his officers, uh, several of them anyway, are going to desert him. He's he's not the favourite. So we mentioned earlier the high point of his career was like the Battle of Philippi where he was, uh, or Philippi, where he had defeated the conspirators and he's in the best position and he's got the, you know, he's he he's in that best position and he feels almost regal and in control and is by far the most powerful man in Rome and he has the potential to invade Parthia and he has the resources and the ability to do it but it's all sliding downhill the Parthian thing fell apart the the life in Egypt is a little bit you know hedonistic uh it's not it's just slowly slipping away and this break up here into Actium this logistical nightmare is going to make him fall apart so once again the when in doubt Antony is going to attack for the battle of Actium Cahill what does the history machine think is going to happen here the history machine agreed with the deserting officers that this was lost like Antony had done very well in other battles where maybe he hadn't set up well strategically but he could just fight his way out of it tactically uh, against the odds but this battle across the entire database not just this episode this is one of the ones where the history machine was most certain of the result it it gave nearly 100% chance that Agrippa would win this one. Oh wow it predicted it was also very close with its prediction on how many casualties Mark Anthony's army would suffer it predicted maybe 29% it was actually closer to 24 but it was very close especially for naval battles which are usually less predictable and uh, on Agrippa's side as well it expected much heavier casualties. Again, naval battle. Uh, mm-hmm. It expected him to lose 40% of his army. He only lost about 13%, which, you know, it's a lot, but it's it's half of what Mark Anthony lost, and it's a lot less than expected. So this one, yeah, really, this was definitely, as you said, a blunder for Mark Anthony. This was not... The, he, you know, he shouldn't have accepted battle, more than likely here. Uh, the, of, the officers who deserted were right. Yeah. Now, even... It's probably one of these situations of like, if it's a chessboard situation, it's I'm losing a rook or I'm losing a queen. And funny enough, he saves his queen. <laughs> <laughs> so Antony, even at the Battle of Actium, um, he and Cleopatra are able to retreat and Cleopatra conveniently has the treasury on her ship. So it's, let's get out of here and fight to live another day. But they shouldn't have found themselves with that, you know, chessboard blunder to be in this position in the first place. So you've got a lot of Antony's leftover troops going, I can't believe... You know, I can't believe he deserted us and fled off to uh, fled off to Egypt and kind of left us to die. We're, we're, uh, it's not not cool. So the remaining legions in Greece are going to surrender for the hopes of clemency. It's like, OK, listen, hold on. Right. Your dad, if we did this now, now think about it, Octavian. Your dad, if we did this, he'd be like, oh, it's fine. Just, you know, clemency. Don't do it again. You know, one get out of jail for free card. So Octavian kind of goes, yeah, 
I, I would be happy with this one. Just, you know, don't do it again. So um, the remaining legions in Greece, because of Antony's, you know, betrayal, have effectively surrendered. And thankfully, the son of Caesar, the son of a god, has offered clemency and they are okay. Now, Antony sails back to Alexandria. Uh, it's time to prepare because he knows what's coming up next. There's going to be another invasion. And we're going to have a moment where there's a very brief win at Alexandria because he's well able to make use of the walls here. But that's going to be followed up by an immediate loss here. So what this feels like is like the stock of Antony is dropping so rapidly. We're going to have a dead cat bounce moment here where there's a little bit of just a little win. No, fail. Done. (laughs) So we'll go through a little bit here. Uh, Cahill, if you wouldn't mind, the Battle of Alexandria. This is the the last hurrah here for Antony, where he has got a little bit of a brief win and then an immediate loss. What did the history machine think about this last stand of Antony? So that that last stand battle, the the first half where he wins, um, it's kind of typical for him, really, where it is one of those things. He's not in good position, but tactically, he's just good enough to push through. It really had the odds against it. Like, he's had low odds in a lot of his wins, but this is maybe half of that. This is 16% chance of winning. So oh, he wow. really did well, but it wasn't at all decisive. The history machine expected low casualties in this one and on, on both sides. And even then, it was even lower on both sides. It was the opposite of decisive. Neither side really lost any huge numbers so it was kind of maybe a good tactical show off for Mark Anthony but it wasn't anything that was going to claw back the war at this point Mm -hmm. so Anthony himself knows he's in a horrible position but at this point he believes Cleopatra is dead because of his grief he commits suicide or attempts to commit suicide only to find out that his wife isn't and (laughs) In an awkward kind of like, I only stabbed myself because I thought you were stabbed. <laughs> why do you do this to me? This is why we should break up. Um, <laughs> Anthony is, is spilled his guts, literally. And um, uh, he dies and he commits suicide. Now, Cleopatra, with the death of Antony, offers her surrender to Octavian. And it's kind of like a, a Chief Wiggum, I'm going to try and flirt my way out of this situation. Because, you know, I got, I got to try and do something here. Turn on the old Cleopatra charm. Um, Octavian doesn't want that. He's happily married. And we'll talk about that at a later point. He's happily married. He's in a good position. And what he really wants is to take Cleopatra and bring her back as like a prize. As that gem, the jewel in the crown. Because Octavian is planning a big triumph. And what he would like to do is parade her bring her back to Rome, maybe then exile her into obscurity or something like that. That's an option. Possibly ritually strangle her outside of one of the temples in Rome. It's been done. It was done to Vercingetorix. Could be done to her. And Cleopatra, knowing this is a very high possibility, has this, you know, certain amount of kind of pride and definitely does not want to be just some, you know, notch on a belt or some kind of, you know, head trophy or, or or something that can just be paraded. She has that regal dignity, dignity to her. So she herself commits suicide. Uh, now, the, the legend apparently is that she, like, pokes an asp enough times with the type of snake and gets poisoned and, you know, dies in that situation. So we're going to wrap up soon enough, but I want to mention a couple of side notes about Octavian's brief visit to Egypt. Uh, apparently, during the visit... He goes to Alexander's mummy 
and kind of has a look at it and has this whole kind of like, well, if I'm going to go this far, I'm going to go sightseeing. So he, he gets the sarcophagus of Alexander the Great opened, has a look at it and kind of checks it out. And like, oh, this is amazing. You know, you, you don't get to see this thing every day. And possibly, maybe not, but it's it'll be a fun little fact if it's true. He might have accidentally snapped off his nose in the process. But uh, we'll come back to future uh, Roman emperors who like visit this, you know, the, the Alexandrian sarcophagus. That's really the rug that ties the room together in Alexandria. And uh, they're going to visit it and t- maybe take some of the stuff. And it's, it becomes the real tourist attraction for the, the absolute elites of society. It's, it's just the cool thing to see. I mean, if it was still there today, you'd go and see it. It's, it's got, you know, it's, it'd be pretty cool. So post this, Caesarian, who's now about 15 or 16, and is, you know, only a year or two off what Octavian would have been before he started being taken under a wing and then put into a position of power is assassinated very likely yeah. either he's assassinated or he flees or you know he he falls out of history at this point he goes to retire on a farm <laughs> he goes to retire on a farm no he's almost definitely murdered by um by octavian now this is a situation where it's listen you know two caesars is one caesar too many we there's no point leaving a male heir knocking around i'm not going to make the same kind of mistakes that the other coup literally made. You know, when I take out the opposing rival, I'm going to make sure his family is is dead. I'm going to make sure that I fill the power vacuum. I'm going to make sure that I have people who are loyal around me fill that area as well. And I'm going to make sure that I have access to things like the treasury. I'm going to make sure that the army are loyal to me. So I'm not making the mistakes that Brutus and his co made when they took out Caesar. I need to be sure this works. So Octavian, and we will we'll show the examples where he had to have learned from history. He takes a look at his father, Julius Caesar, and takes a look at how he effectively became in control. And Caesar's plan was lots of clemency, forgive everybody, everyone's a friend, only kill very particular people, and play with a policy of, like, better to be loved, loved than feared, but be both, really. And he ended up getting brutally stabbed to death. Or... I can look a little bit further in history and I can have a look at Sulla. And Sulla ended up just killing anybody who looked at him sideways. (laughs) And after he killed anyone who looked at him sideways, he was able to walk down the street without any bodyguards because anyone who even had a thought of doing anything nasty to him was in the ground. So that wasn't a problem. (laughs) Uh, So Octavian would pretty much take the sullen path instead. It's like, there's no point me forgiving this relative of mine or this actual son of Julius Caesar. There's no point me, uh, you know, providing clemency to these people. What I need to do is, if you're an enemy of me, you're pretty much dead. And that's that's the, the sense I'm going to go with with this. We'll wrap up soon enough about Octavian and we'll, we'll come back to him in a little bit. But the next thing he's going to do is he's going to return to Rome He's back victoriously and he's going to host the largest triumph to date. It's going to take three days to complete. So technically it's like one triumph that's three days long or more, you know, more accurately, three triumphs a day long each. So it is absolutely huge. This is for him the crowning achievement moment. He is now unquestionably the most powerful man in Rome. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up for this episode. But we're going to come back for a part two, which is going to be just Augustus and the House of Caesar and what's involved in it. But for now, just so we can go through some of the facts and figures, we're going to do a top three of the commanders for this episode. So, Cahill, please, coming in at number three. So, at number three, 
of the major figures in this episode, we have Mark Anthony. But it is worth noting that he still has a good score. Okay. He has a wins over expectation of 0.14 with 10 battles and 5 wins. So, like, even though that's only 50-50, he was so often fighting against the odds that it expected... It, it really thinks he should have won maybe three of those and drawn another and lost the rest. He's, he's one that I think maybe... He wasn't a great strategic mind, but he was often so good at the tactics he could get out of it. So, you know, when, when he won, it was it often really ramped his score up. But the problem was he got himself into so many messy situations, like sooner or later his luck would run out, and he, he ends up with five losses, which is probably a lot more than he should have had with better overall planning. Yeah. Um, other than that, in terms of uh, casualties, what was expected, he maybe took... Small, a very small amount more, probably within the margin of error than expected, and dealt out a small bit more than expected. Mm -hmm. Overall, he seems to be one that's good, but maybe not great. Okay, that's good. Now we kind of mentioned a bit earlier. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the big names have either been, you know, killed by Caesar or Co. And uh, we're we're left with some of his, um, some of his almost B team commanders. And and Antony gets, in, in fairness, he's a very famous individual in history. But he he gets a reasonable score simply because what he does and who he's involved with and and you know who he served under and you know some of his early wins are with caesar so it it gives it gives him that little bit of a boost and he definitely does find himself in those awkward situations which he shouldn't and you could definitely say there's a bit of luck involved to him because he probably could have been killed a hell of a lot earlier and that not have been um not have been not really have been a surprise so it's 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 a little bit miraculous that he lasted that long but overall over a long enough timeline he had to fail it it's um it didn't really make too much sense he might have been a reasonable commander or a good commander, but good is not enough for what he wanted to be or the kind of dynasties and legacies that he would have been involved with. It really feels that if a Julius Caesar, or even we go back a bit further, if if a, if a Ptolemy or an Alexander or a, or a Darius or someone was dealing with him, they really would have, you know, ruined him and moved on. Uh, he, d- he doesn't have that extra little bit of special that's there. He's definitely a daring individual and he probably was a very charismatic individual and probably a great guy to have fun with and go out for a drink. You know, <laughs> I'm sure he, he had a lot of really positive, like, personal qualities. Like, he did have loyalty from legions um, and that doesn't come from being a from being a, um, a Lepidus-like individual. So we, he's coming in here for this particular episode at number three. Now, I'll mention we did actually cover Antony before, but because we've added more battles and more figures and more stats, and the history machine itself has been updated, his figures have changed around a little bit, but he's still ending up at this kind of bog standard, kind of yeah. good, not great situation that we would have given him before, but we can see that with a little bit more accuracy and a little bit more detail. So, with that aside, Carl, who is coming in here for this episode at number two? Number two, with an asterisk, is Augustus. Mm -hmm. He has ten battles in the database. Seven of those are wins, which is a good return. His wins over expectations, it's a bit higher uh, than Mark Anthony's. It's 0.19 wins over expectations. So, you know, probably across ten battles, you're kind of talking about he probably should have been 50-50. Instead, he won seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. His casualties dealt over expectation was good. It was about 15% more than expected. He lost about what what you'd expect. The reason I say with an asterisk is that he was very rarely 
the lead commander of his armies. He yes. was good maybe at planning, he was good at picking his battles and so on, but he wasn't the guy out there tactically the way that Mark Anthony was. And I think if you look at the battles in the database where it was him as the main guy in charge, I think there are three in the database and he loses two of them. Yeah. Um, so he it really is, he's a good delegator, but Mark Anthony, I think, is definitely the better tactician. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go a little bit into this, and you've you've definitely touched it, even with the asterisk, as, as an idea. This is a good example of when we group together commanders in the history machine, that, you know, we might have three commanders in charge or three people attributed to battle or whatever it might be, whatever the figure could be. You know, like, like the Alexandrian camp. We thought of this before, that the Alexander the Great scores a nice score or the commanders around him because they, they kind of have that teamwork going for them and that if there's one really good name in there, they can bring up everybody else because their competency, you know, factors in for the incompetency of the other people. Even from the records, even from some of the contemporary sources at the time, things that were written, things that were written by people who, after the fact, know this guy is going to become the most powerful man in Rome and he could have them exiled or killed. They only rate him as like, he, was, he wasn't good. It's the, the known secret that he is an abysmal commander. So virtually, I think, any score here that we give him is completely attributed to other people who are propping him up. He is... He is a guy who is finishing a marathon because two other runners are carrying him across the finish line. I don't know if you're familiar with the legendary 1904 St. Louis Olympics marathon, but there was a guy in that who got tired, then got a lift halfway through, and then claimed he had won it because, like, there wasn't good communication at that time. So, like, for the first <laughs> maybe half hour until the next runner arrived, everyone just was like, yeah, he he won. Isn't he great? That's a bit what Augustus has done. He He's yeah. not doing the heavy lifting himself. He gets the lift for mm-hmm. half the route and then he claims victory. <laughs> yes. So, um, we, Work I'm smarter, just going to say harder. right now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm definitely going to say off the bat, the figures for him are inflated naturally. Uh, you, we just have to admit that. There's no way he's a... Like, if, he, if, if we had a one-to-one battle with Mark Antony and Augustus, Mark Antony is going to win if we had a hand-to-hand combat. In fact, that was something Mark Antony suggested that he and Octavian should have, and Octavian politely declined. So, so if it's a one-on-one, he he doesn't stand a chance by any stretch of the imagination. He is more likely to either be, as I said, the two combinations either naturally get sick and is going to be pretty useless on the day. He's going to be hiding out in a swamp. He's going to come back the next day and see who won and what happened. You know, there are other situations where he finds himself stranded on the beach. Sometimes he spends a battle looking up at the sky. He's comp- like the, the, the records of him to show him as just completely inept at managing people. He, he should probably have a negative score here. In fact, he, like, he, he's bringing down everybody else around him. It's, it's insane. But he does get to become the leader of Rome. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a side note talking about him in general. And this is just kind of much more of a uh, sociology conversation for a moment. But this is just kind of a, a natural thing about politics and ideas and who gets to be in charge of the world. Like for, for example, right now, the strongest man in the world, the most intelligent person in the world, um, the most, the richest person in the world, none of them are probably the most powerful individuals. And that's just kind of a thing of, of human politics. Like, 
even you could say the most powerful politicians aren't 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 the richest people in the world. They aren't the smartest people in the world, and they have that special something, whether it be delegation, whether it be forming relationships, whether it be managing people, and where Octavian shines with a, a magical ability is he is able to surround himself and make friends with very competent people who should be in positions of power because of their merit, because of their ability, and be able to put that much loyalty into them and be able to get that much out of them that they don't turn on them. And that in itself is an absolutely magical ability. So the only reason he isn't wasn't immediately per you know that well he wasn't purged and killed once Julius Caesar died, but that by all means he should have just run off into exile and hid somewhere. But he had that special something, that ability, these other attributes that have nothing to do with military prestige, and still would find himself in charge of the military and would still find himself in charge of arguably one of the biggest empires in history and one of the most powerful empires at that time and and the most dominant um, military empire in the Mediterranean to date. So it it boggles the mind when you think about it, but at the same time, it makes a bit of sense. You don't have to be the best military commander. You don't have to be the strongest man. You don't have to be the most intelligent person to be in charge. And in fact, those people tend not to be. And that's just the way that human society works. So Octavian gets to be in this position of power because he has an he has a completely different skill set that doesn't overlap with military ability even in a world where military ability is vital yeah he has that he has that blend of charisma delegation and nepotism you know being born yes. into power you look through history those three things in combination it's some of the most influential powerful people you know of all are people who have those three traits with all of that aside, and we ranted a little bit about Octavian just to try and explain why he comes here at number two. But, you know, he does end up winning a civil war and Mark Antony dies and he gets to have the triumphs. Um, who comes in for this episode at number one? So at number one, we have Agrippa. And this is, mm-hmm. I think we were talking, you know, Mark Antony, great tactician, but he just didn't seem to pick his battles. Agrippa is like, you know, he let, Augustus was there to kind of figure out the situation, make the alliances get the, you know, beg, borrow, or steal the legions or the navies and everything else. And then Agrippa was just there to be the tactician to make sure everything went as planned. And as a result, like, he just, he had three battles and three wins. Even though he was put in really good circumstances for most of those battles, he still has a wins over expectations of 0.32. So... Oh, wow. Even even with the good circumstances, the history machine thinks he should have lost at least one of those battles. Okay. And further to that, and I think this is, like... You know, it's easy to say he was put in a good position by Augustus, they were childhood friends, everything else. But his casualties sustained over expectations is minus 0.26. So he lost like more than a quarter fewer of his army, you know, quarter less of his army than he should have. I was going to say, no wonder he's liked by his troops. And he dealt out, he dealt out about a quarter more casualties than expected. So he, like that ratio is, is what you want. Like he loses very few of his own men. He takes out a lot of the enemy and... He just wins. <laughs> that yeah, like what, what more could you ask for? You do kind of think like Mark Anthony, if I suppose he hadn't been in opposition, if he had stayed in alliance with Augustus, maybe he could have been in that position. But I suppose instead he he did see the opportunity for his own power grab, and you know it would have been reasonable to assume that I think at at certain points, but he could he just wasn't able to pull it off. Yeah, 
So he pretty much, yeah, he puts himself in a pretty bad position. And well, sorry, well, Mark Anthony puts himself in that in that bad position, but but Agrippa comes out on top. Now to go back again a tiny bit to the the idea of uh, you know human relationships and what's involved. Realistically, Agrippa he could have very simply turned on Augustus or Octavian Augustus at any point in time. Kind of went, I guess I get to be in charge. And I think it would be very difficult for for uh, for an Octavian to actually stop him do that. And that tells you something about the caliber or the gravitas or whatever kind of je ne sais quoi you want to attribute to Octavian. That he never did that. That he had a loyal friend, a competent loyal friend who was that loved in the military profession and in the legions that he was still able to be in control and keep Agrippa, not necessarily in check, but like be able to keep Agrippa as a buddy and never kind of, never have Agrippa turn on him at any particular point. Now that also might say something about the character of Agrippa. Possibly Agrippa never wanted to be in charge, never wanted to be the head guy, would really prefer to just be, I'll just be the the, the soldier who, you know, marches along, does his job, has the, to- has the goal, has the task. I don't really have the ambition to go that far and to be the guy in charge. I don't want the sword of Damocles over my head at any point. I would be very happy to help my best friend here and make sure that he stays in, in charge. And if he ever finds himself in an awkward situation where he's in a war, I'll definitely be there to jump in and save him. And that's pretty much Agrippa's role in the Octavian story. And he plays it, he plays it like a blinder. It's wonderful. He's just, he's really, really good at it. Now, even looking at his facts and even looking at his figures, um, he's a very good commander. Very, very good. He's not as good as a Julius Caesar. He's not as good as a um, an Alexander the Great from the figures that we've shown earlier or, or a Sulla or some of the earlier Roman commanders or some of the earlier the earlier commanders we've covered, like I don't think he, he wouldn't have numbers comparable to our Ramses or, or numbers comparable to some of our Greek commanders. But he will have a very high score in a time where there weren't that many high scores at all. So it's kind of an idea that he's the best of his time um, and the best after a time where there's a lot of purging. And that puts him into a very, very strong position where he probably would have been beaten by other famous commanders. So he, he probably shouldn't be in a, a list of a top 10, but the time and place that he is born in to the people and the opponents he has to face, he is well able to deal with them. And you could probably also argue that if he did grow up in a time and place that was much more difficult, that probably would have polished and sharpened his abilities. So we never, never might know. That's kind of heavy speculation. But... Right now, for what he needs to do for this episode, for this time in history, he is really in the Roman Civil Wars, the tail end at the start of the Roman Empire, peerless. So with all that set aside, I think we're pretty good. We're going to call it a wraps for this episode. We're going to have a part two to this episode, which will be Augustus, and we'll cover much more the the time after this and a little bit of how the empire forms, what gets involved with it, what's the line of succession, who's involved and when, and and what they get up to, and a little bit of the personal life of Octavian and Agrippa and where they're going to go from here. Because they've won the prize of empire and now it's time to make the empire, make it roll, make it wonder. So thanks very much for listening. And if you want to contact us, we have a website, historymachinepodcast.com. We're on Twitter as well. And you can also email us at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com. So 
Thanks very much for listening. I've been Niall. I've been Cole. And thanks again. 